Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. A few weeks ago, I was, uh, I was helping lead a church planting boot camp for our denomination. Our denomination is a fellowship of evangelical churches. It's fecministries.org, I believe, if you want to learn more about our fellowship. Um, but we were doing a boot camp where we had different people who were planting a church within our denomination, but we also had uh, different church planting organizations that went to Fort Wayne and were learning how uh, the FEC plants churches. The FEC, we are a church plant from the FEC, so I was trained in, from leaders in our denomination, and um, they've asked me to help play a role in training other church planters. Um, and it was Monday, and I was just about to go up and sit on a panel the way that we lead these boot camps is the main instructor will be here, but then there'll be people on stools off to the side that will chime in at any time or answer any questions people have, but there's one main instructor. So for the next session, I was gonna be sitting over here on the sidelines just chiming in. And one of my friends who's on the executive team for the denomination came over and said, uh, you have a phone call and um, I don't know what it is. It's, it's Kara, but I don't know what's going on. So I immediately had this sinking feeling in my gut because uh, my dad had been battling bar- Parkinson's for a while, um, but I went upstairs and the lady in the office was like, let me find you a private area to take this, and I was like, oh, great. I said, you know what, I'm just going to, it's okay, I'm going to go get my cell phone, I'm going to go out my car, I'll take it, I'll call her, I'll call her from my car. So I was kind of expecting the worst, and um, I called her, Kara was crying, and she, uh, she said, your dad has taken a, a turn, a pretty hard turn for the worst. And I said, he's, he's alive? Yes, he's still alive. Okay, okay, I gotta think. Do we, is, are we talking? Now, I'm not putting this on you, so I don't want you to feel guilty for the next 10 years if you give me the wrong answer, but are we talking days or hours? And she said, great, I don't know, I don't know. So I talked with her for a while, and I got off the phone, and I was sitting in my car, and I was like, man, I'm this is a hard spot because I'm supposed to be the point person. I'm the lead instructor for the last two sessions of the boot camp. And so I had prepared those and nobody else did. And I'm, I'm just thinking, this is an impossible situation. This is an impossible decision to make. So I just prayed, I asked the Lord about it and I just sensed that God was like, no, it's, it's good, you're fine, finish, finish, drive home, you'll be able to, you'll be able to see him. So I, I went, back into the building, went downstairs, and my friend came up and, to me and just asked, is, how's, is everything okay? And I said, no, not really. My dad took a turn for the worse, and he said, Greg, you can go home. I mean, Tom, will, Tom the, the person that leads, it was leading the thing, Tom will figure it out. You're fine. You can go home. And um, he won't mind. And then I told him, yeah, I'm leading the last two sessions. <laughs> and he's like, Ugh. your call, your call. So I stayed, I led, and we got through it, and I drove home, and fortunately, my, uh, I got to see my dad that night. The next morning, it was amazing. We, you know, we had a couple hours with just our family and dad at hospice before anyone else came in, and it was precious. It was amazing, and I, I think I've processed to the point where, uh, <clears throat> and it was important for me to do this, I processed this to the point where I 
talk about it without falling apart up here because what I don't need is for Southside to be my therapist. That's not, that's not on you guys to do that. So I'm okay and I don't think I'm even gonna cry today. But it was an amazing time. You know, that two hours with just the five of us together was absolutely precious and incredible and it was a great day. Um, we had people uh, coming in and visiting, dropping snacks off, and just loving on us in some amazing ways. It was a wonderful day. And, you know, the doctor had warned us that there's going to be a difficult period where he gets kind of the death rattle, and he's going to be really labored breathing, and he's going to have a hard time, and it's going to be scary. And he never had it. We all went home that night and we just said, we'll, we'll be back tomorrow, it was a great day, it was an awesome day, we'll be back tomorrow, more people are visiting, it's gonna be good. The next morning my sister got there at six in the morning and he was gone. And then they went and told the, she went and told the, um, the nurses and they're like, they're shocked because they were in there at 5 a.m. and he was breathing. Like when, when we left there was no laborious breathing, it looked like he was sleeping and he was peaceful and it was, uh, it was incredible. Um, so the nurses were shocked. He went in great peace. And that, that is a, a severe mercy, and we were grateful for that. But that began uh, this journey of grief that obviously I'm still on. Um, you have to go through a year to get through the first stage of grief because you have to go through all the, you know, all the anniversaries, all the birthdays, all the holidays. And you have to experience those for the first time without them. But grief has a purpose. And grief has a lot to do with Lent. And Lent is the 40 days, not including Sundays, that lead up to Easter. And the best way to allow grief to do its job, to follow the path of Lent, is one, when you're feeling sad, to let yourself feel sad. Now, we don't talk about this stuff a lot as as just churches in general, it's hard for us to talk about death. So, hey, it's Lent, we're in the Garden of Grief, we're gonna talk about it a little bit today. So if you've never heard this, this is gonna be really helpful for you. When you're sad, let yourself be sad. And the second thing is, when you're not, when you're not sad, don't feel guilty because you're not sad. And that's even harder for some people. Because part of letting the Spirit use grief for what it was intended to do to heal and restore your heart, to make you more human, actually, is to help you to realize that there is joy after loss. And if you start laughing at something, or if you start enjoying a moment, and then you begin to feel ashamed of yourself or embarrassed or bad because you're enjoying something and my dad died, I shouldn't be enjoying anything, then you're cutting short the work that grief is wanting to do. That's how you grieve. When you're sad, let yourself feel the full brunt force of it. And when you're not sad, don't feel guilty because you're not sad. Grief is a strange thing. One minute you're fine, and the next minute, your wife walks into the kitchen, you're on the floor bawling because you just can't stand. And then there's the rush of activity. And this, is all, this was all part of it for us. And if you've experienced this, you can relate to it. If you haven't experienced it, then you, you will. But it's a weird thing when someone that you love very much dies and then you're ushered into a flurry of activity. You have to write an obituary. 
You have to get flowers. You have to call a pastor to officiate the service. You have to plan. There's all sorts of things to do. But if when that happens to you, don't see that as an obstacle to grief. See it as a pathway to grief. See it as the Spirit is with you in this. Jesus is with you in this. Use this as a tool to help grieve. <clears throat> and then before we jump into this passage, there's the grayness. The gray blanket that covers over your life for a bit of time. It's the, it's the ghost at the table. It's being unmotivated when you're typically a very motivated person. I remember the, um, a, the day after my dad passed, I, I, had, I, I always write a to-do list of things I need to do, and I literally wrote shower, <laughs> brush your teeth, fix coffee. And I did those things, and it was exhausting to do it. It was, I, there was just so much humming just beneath the surface that it was hard for me to, to do the stuff that just comes naturally normally. Lent ushers us into the grief and the sorrow of Jesus. And it ushers us through that to the second garden of resurrection. But we can't rush past Gethsemane. So I want you to turn, if you have your scriptures with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. <clears throat> We're going to be looking at verses 36 through 46. And if you're visiting with us today, um, there is a weird version of Christianity that is sometimes taught that makes you feel like when you become a Christian, everything starts going right in your life. Or when you become a Christian all of your troubles or all of your suffering begins to disappear. And we just don't see that in Scripture. We see that, like I said earlier, you become equal to the moment. The suffering doesn't disappear, but the help in the presence of God becomes more vivid to you, becomes more real to you. And you begin to relate to Jesus in new ways, which is what I'm discovering in Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46, to set the scene, Jesus just had the Passover meal with his 12 disciples, and then 11, and then he walks with them after the Passover meal along the, the gates of Jerusalem, through the Kidron Valley, past the graves of prophets and kings of the Old Testament to Gethsemane which is a garden that sits at the foot of the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane means oil press. And the Garden of Gethsemane has all these olive trees in it, and it's, it's like a picture of these olive trees being pressed so that the oil comes out of them, and that's, that's kind of what happens to Jesus in Gethsemane. He's pressed to the place where he, uh, even his sweat becomes drops of blood. He was in anguish in this garden because the betrayal was coming and then the crucifixion and then the forsakenness by his father. So he was facing all of these things. He was in profound grief. And I'm gonna start reading with verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and, make, and, and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now, <clears throat> here we get, as clear as anywhere, a view of Jesus' humanity. This is really, really important. 
Because when we think about Jesus, it's sometimes easy to think of, you know, when we're trying to reconcile that Jesus is God and man, we sometimes solve the tension that creates by coming up with weird solutions. Like we know that Jesus was completely God. In John 8:58, the Pharisees were talking with Jesus and he said, uh, they, they were basically asking who he was and he, he said, before Abraham was, I am which was a reference back to, I think it's Exodus 3.14 where Moses asked God what his name is and he said, I am. Jesus is saying that he is I am. Jesus is saying that he's the Father. He told people the Father and I are one. It is very clear in scripture that Jesus is God and there is nothing about him that is not God. He is completely God, but we also know that he's completely man. He's a person. And so sometimes the solution that we come up with, with that tension is, uh, okay, let's say he was 50% God and 50% man. Like he was like a hybrid. But he wasn't 50% God and 50% man. He was 100% God and 100% man. And the fact that he was 100% man means that he understands our pain, means that he understands our grief, means that he can relate to that, and this changed the way that I pray in the throes of grief. And this is essential for you to understand about God, that because he is completely God, it doesn't mean that there's aspects of your life he just can't relate to. Now, he was without sin, we know that, so he doesn't relate in any way to sin because he lived it perfectly. But sorrow, grief, angst, angst, however you say that word, all of it, stress, he felt all of that. And that has dramatically shifted how I, how I relate to Jesus through this grief. I know he understands. Verse 37, it says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now, this is really important too. Jesus knew all along what was gonna happen to him, Right? I mean, he'd been telling the disciples that he was going to be betrayed, that he was going to be crucified. He was telling them individually how they would betray him. He knew that he was born to die for the sins of the world. And he knew that it included being forsaken by his father on the cross, his own version of hell. I mean, Jesus knew all of that stuff all along. But grief waits until the moment it's actually happening. You know, it would be nice if you could spread grief out. It'd be nice if, let's say, um, so I'm, let's say, let's say Kara's going to die in 50 years. I'm, I'm just like, I can't even imagine the grief that will happen if she goes first. I don't care how old we are. That's going to be brutal. So imagine if I was able to say, so I'm going to grieve just five minutes a day preparing for that. For the next 50 years, if I grieve five minutes a day, then I will probably have a lot of that grief out. That's not how grief works. It'd be so much better if it did, in my mind. But grief waits until it actually happens. And just like my friend John was saying before service, you can't prepare for it. You can't prepare for it. There's no way you can prepare for it. And that's what we see Jesus coming to in Gethsemane. This deep grief, this deep sorrow that happens just on the horizon 
of what's going to happen to him. I'll let you in on a personal story here. For some strange reason, I thought that when someone that I love dearly dies, that for some reason I would just be covered over with this God-given peace that was just so thick I didn't feel any sadness. Like I, for some reason, had this false belief that that's what would happen, that somehow peace and sadness can't coexist. But peace and sadness can coexist. And I don't think I ever really did, well, I maybe did for a moment, we'll talk about that, completely lose my peace. But I thought because I was so deeply sad that God must not be there. And that I must not, um, he must not care. I must not be experiencing peace because I'm so sad. I didn't think they could exist together. There's a tension here. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death, where's your sting? And Paul tells the, the Thessalonians, don't, you know, I don't want you to grieve like other people do. Because we grieve with hope. Because we know the end of the story. So there is a tension, but immature Christianity solves tensions by leaning one way. By saying, you should never be sad. because You shouldn't be really sad at all because we know that Jesus is coming back. We know we get resurrected bodies. We know you're going to be with your dad again. That's an immature way to handle the tension. The way that you handle the tension between don't grieve like others do and Jesus grieved. Jesus was a man of sorrows. You sit right in the middle and you embrace both. Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set before him, but he still grieved he still would have preferred not to. That's what he said in his prayer to the Father. Jesus didn't fast track through the grief. Jesus didn't fast track through the sorrow. He sat in it. And he allowed himself to feel the full weight of it in the Garden of Gethsemane. And actually, not just in Gethsemane. Andrew Sheed, who wrote a book called A Mouthful of Fire, which is a um, commentary in the book of Jeremiah. Andrew Sheed says this, not a moment of Jesus' life was untroubled. Now there's some churches you wouldn't be allowed to say that. Because some versions of Christianity is that you'll never experience trouble. Jesus lived victoriously in every aspect of his life, and he did, and he was deeply troubled. He was a man of sorrows. Isaiah 53, 3 says that calls Jesus a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We have to learn to be comfortable with tensions. We have to, because trying to solve a tension by going to one of the extremes is, is a mark of immaturity. Sit right in the middle and say, yes, Jesus was full of joy. The fruit of the Spirit loved joy. Joy is the second fruit of the Spirit, and we should be full of joy and full at the same time of grief and brokenness, looking at the broken world. Both are true. Don't lean one way. You sit right in the middle with both of those because scripture affirms both. God's both man and God. How do you solve that tension? You don't. You sit right in the middle with it. And when you sit in the middle of a tension, it grows you and changes you and matures you. The fact that God, that Jesus was a man of sorrows 
tells us that there's no pain that you've ever experienced that Jesus hasn't already experienced it at an infinite level. Which means he gets it. And he's been there. And so for me to believe that I wouldn't have to experience the full measure of that deep grief and sorrow was just silly. And I remember the moment I began to realize I was wrong. I told Kara when, I forget what, the nights kind of run together. I forget what night it was, but it was after um, we had done most of the planning for the funeral. And I just, I told Kara, I need to go on a, I need to go on a drive it was, it was dark, it was evening, and that's when it was getting really hard for me in the evenings. I was like, I, just, I need to go on a drive, I need to be alone. She's like, uh, are you okay? Really, do you need to have somebody go with you? And I was like, I, I just actually need to be alone on this one. And I remember talking with God and just, it was like the ugly cry where you just kind of, I'm gonna let it all out right now. And I, I had it out, I talked with God. And if this is hard for your theology, then you haven't read the Psalms enough because the Psalms show us that God is not emotionally fragile. He can handle whatever we throw at him. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna unleash here because I don't see you. I don't feel you. I don't know where you're at right now. I'm gonna be real honest with you. I don't, I don't like how this is, this is going down. And it's because of what I said earlier where there was that moment where maybe I lost a little bit of that peace, but I did that because I didn't understand why I didn't have this peace. I didn't know how to sit in the middle of the tension that God is still with you and this is incredibly, really, really hard. But I think looking back at that, I can see how Jesus was sitting with me in solidarity empathizing with the sorrow and saying, yeah, I asked my father questions like that too. I asked him on the cross, why have you forsaken me? It's the same question. And so there's a way of grieving where you actually are getting a deeper intimacy with God. And I wonder if there's a situation in your life where you might be doubting God's presence. Where God doesn't, for me, like, like I was experiencing, God doesn't seem to be fixing it. And what I didn't realize was something that I, I heard in a teaching is that God doesn't fix death. He redeems it. He makes life on the other side of it better because of death. He can shoot straight with a crooked stick. He can use anything. Michael Allen says, for as far as, the, as far as the curse is found, so far runs the span of redemption. There isn't a shadow on earth that won't be redeemed. And God might not fix your situation, but he will redeem it. He will use it for your, your ultimate good. He doesn't waste pain. So when you are experiencing pain, when I'm experiencing pain, don't waste it. It serves a purpose. In fact, I will, let's, uh, let's just pause right here before we move on to verse 38. Let's just pause and, and bow your heads. If you're visiting with us for the first time or if you're, you're on your journey, you're not really a Christian yet, you, don't, you, can just, you can just bow your heads and close your eyes. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to pray anything. You can just listen. But I, I would love for everyone just to bow your heads and close your eyes and sit quietly 
And I want you to allow a situation to come to mind in which you are disappointed or frustrated with God. A situation where it feels like you tried, you've, you've tried to fix it or you've tried to become aware of his presence or you've tried to pay attention to how he might be comforting you or you've made demands for God and he's not following through. What is that situation? Let it come to mind. A, a place where you've experienced grief or pain have asked God to take away the grief, but he hasn't. And I want to be very careful and very tender here, and I don't want you to go beyond what you're able, but I want you to be honest with God in this moment about how you feel about that. And he can handle it. He's not as fragile as we are. He'd rather you be honest. He does not deal with the false self. He doesn't deal with make-believe. Show up as you are right now and tell him, And if there isn't anything, then don't make it up. Just enjoy him. And now if you're able, I would invite you to follow along with me in this prayer. If you're able, and if you mean it, or if you want to get to this place, you can just repeat after me under your breath to yourself, Father, help me to trust in you. Help me to release control. Help me to release expectations of how I think you ought to be present in this. And instead, help me to live with a sense of expectancy that you are present. that you are redeeming this situation, that you are using this situation to form me, to mature me, to deepen my relationship with you, that you are using this, even this, for my good and for your ultimate glory. In Jesus' strong name, amen. Friends, the truth is that a life free of any type of suffering or grief is an underdeveloped life. There are muscles that you don't exercise spiritually when everything's going well. Verse 38. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face. He fell on his face. Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time. 
saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The darkest, it's, it's darkest moment in Jesus' life. And um, his friends weren't able to be there. The book of Mark is, is an unusual book because it, it begins with Jesus being driven to the wilderness to be alone. And that's how Jesus launches into his ministry. In the book of Mark, there's some, John the Baptist is doing some ministry Jesus gets baptized, Jesus gets baptized, then he gets driven into the wilderness to be all alone for 40 days. And then as the book of Mark progresses, these these crowds swell around Jesus. So towards the end, I mean, there's just people pressing in around him everywhere, and he's active, and there's a lot of immediacy in the words, in words like, and then he went to, or immediately he went to. There's a lot of action, there's a lot of crowds, there's a lot of movement. But then towards the end of Mark again, the crowds dwindle. And you find Jesus in the, in the upper room. Kind of goes like this, he's alone, then big crowds. And then you find him in the upper room with the 12 disciples. And then with the 11, because one leaves to betray him. And then they go to Garden of Gethsemane and he takes three further with him than the others. And then he goes a stone's throw away and he's off by himself. And then he goes to the cross and he's abandoned by the Father. And that's the path of grief. That's the dynamic of grief with one exception. The reason why Jesus was abandoned by the Father is so that we would never have to be. Jesus experienced hell, the worst part of hell is losing intimate connection with the Father. And he experienced hell on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. And in your grief, if it hasn't happened yet, it will one day, so remember this. In your grief, when you get to that place where it's just you and the Father, Remember something that my uh, spiritual director said to me as he was walking me through this, and that there are treasures in the darkness that are unavailable any other time. There are songs in the night that are not singable in the day. That's what he told me. And I'm finding that it's true. There's ways of relating to God. There's an intensity of relating to God in sorrow, in grief, and in heartache that's not available any other time. Don't miss it. God's goal is deeper intimacy with him, and he uses grief to get you there. Now, to start driving us towards the end, if, if, if God were just a God who can empathize with our grief and sorrow because he's experienced it, um, that wouldn't really be a God that I would want to follow if that was it. If he, just, if he just was able to relate to us, if it was just the case that, yeah, I can empathize with you, I'll sit here with you in the sadness, and that's all that he was able to do, I don't know if that would be enough for me. I want him to be able to do something about it. 
And we've said before that one of the ways you can learn to read the scripture is look for the dramatic reversals. And that scripture is full of dramatic reversals. Those moments where it feels like there is no way out of this. And death is the ultimate. There's no way out. There's nothing that can change this. There's nothing that can make this better. But what we see as we journey from Gethsemane to the the next garden, which we'll talk about in two Sundays, is the greatest dramatic reversal in history. God reverses death. He redeems it in a way that life after it is even sweeter, even more personal, even more connected with ones that we love and with God himself. He uses it, and that's the story of Easter morning, and that's where we're going but don't fly past the grief. I want you to look at this um, passage on your own tomorrow. I'm just gonna wrap this up here. Uh, there's, there's a practice that I talked about a few weeks ago called divine meditation. And um, I'm learning it from one of the books that I'm reading. And it's a Puritan practice of sitting with a a text, a small, a short text, but absorbing it and paying attention to it and rereading it slowly or reading it out loud or reading when you're outside walking, but sitting with it, not blurring past it, reading it several times and asking the Spirit to, what, what is there in this passage for me? What do you want me to do? How do you want to comfort me? How do you want to change me? How do you want to challenge me? How do you want to open my eyes wider to who you really are and what you've really done for us? How do you want to help me understand the gospel in this? Just sitting with the passage and chewing on it, thinking about it, meditating on it, pondering it, reflecting on it. I want you to do that with this passage tomorrow morning. And I'll give you permission just to pause, just to pause your whatever Bible reading plan you're doing to sit with this. And maybe God will bring to mind something that was said today and write it down and reflect on it and pray it and get used to just being nourished by the scripture yourself. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.